Good morning. This is our concluding message in the Fear Not series. Throughout the Bible, we're told nearly 400 times, fear not. God is on our side. Fear not. We don't need to be consumed with our fears. Fear not. We're told that over and over again. And we started this, this series by looking at the, when fear gets the best of us. And then we moved into our acrostic on fear, F, face your fears with faith, not just faith in any old thing, faith in God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. E, examine your circumstances in light of the facts. Get a clear view of your fears. Are they rational or irrational? A, attack those anxieties with action. We looked at Jonathan's crazy plan in 1 Samuel 4. He refused to sit on the sidelines, but he jumped into the action and attacked those anxieties. Today is R. Release those worries. Release those troubles. Release that uncertainty. Release that fear to God Almighty. Growing up, our greatest fears was not from a pandemic or virus. It was the Soviet Union. Between us and the Soviets, when I was a kid, we had enough bombs to destroy every living thing many times over. The threat of thermal nuclear war was always present. Back in 2004, I was on a work and witness trip to Russia. It was about 10 years after the fall of the USSR. The Russian district superintendent was, was with us nearly every day. We talked a lot, and he told me about his years in the Russian army. I asked him, I said, well, what did you do when you were in the army? And he said, protect the motherland from the Americans. There was fear on both sides. Well, in 1983, I had just started my junior year at Olivet. When the crisis hit its highest point, probably since the Cuban nuclear missile crisis and the Bay of Pigs and that whole mess, our president, Ronald Reagan, had been talking tough to the Soviets and the American public about how the Soviets were an evil empire. Tensions were high. And on August 31st, 1983, Korean Airlines Flight 007, the sound of that sounds like it's a spy plane with James Bond on board, but it wasn't. It was a passenger jet with 269 passengers and crew, including a United States congressman from Georgia. Well, it had drifted into Soviet airspace, and subsequently, the Soviets shot it down. Everyone on board was killed. We were one step closer to war. It seemed like nuclear war was inevitable. Several months later, ABC made a made-for-TV movie called The Day After. Do you remember that movie? Some of you old-timers like me remember it. It was a fictional nuclear attack where Kansas City, Missouri was the intended target. Kansas City, Missouri was also my intended destination upon graduation from Olivet. I was going to attend Nazarene Theological Seminary there. So me and a hundred million of my closest friends watched what would happen should the Soviets push the button. At the time, the day after was the most watched TV movie in U.S. history. We were so fearful then. People are fearful now. And I suppose the question that we're asking is, what are we going to do with those fears? Well, I have one solution for you. Vivos. You can Google it. V-I-V-O-S. Don't Google it now. Wait until Till after the sermon, but you can Google Vivos. Vivos is a company that was, has built luxury condos deep, deep, deep underground in Cold War era nuclear facilities. From their website, it says, people are sensing that a global life-changing event is just ahead. Millions of people believe that we are living in the end times. 
The governments of this world know something and have been bunkering up for decades. Why is nobody telling you to prepare? Obviously, to avoid a mass panic. What is your plan? What will your family be, victims or survivors? So you can survive every bad thing that happens on the surface of the earth, earthquakes, tsunamis, pandemics, nuclear war, all for the low, low down payment price of $35,000. I think the total cost is like $3 million. So you can survive in this bunker, in this up-to-date style condo for a year. They have supplies that will last you one year. There's one in Indiana. That's not a far drive. Uh, so, oh, by the way, by the way, the owner believes that God revealed to him in 1980, so about the time Reagan was calling the Soviet Union an evil empire. And according to the owner, God spoke to this dude and said, build luxury condo bunkers, kind of like a Noah's Ark for rich people. Two by two, if you've got a few million dollars sitting in your pocket. You can do it, just $3 million. Or, not a boat or, or, or another option. We've been talking about it since Easter. You can face those fears with faith in God. You can examine your circumstances. Are they real or irrational? You can attack those anxieties with action. We talked about it last week. Don't sit around immobilized. Trust God. Move out. Go forward. And R, release those fears to God. Rational or irrational, release those fears, those worries, those anxieties to God Almighty. I find comfort in the final words from the last book of the Bible. Some folks read the book of Revelation as a roadmap to the end times. Light reading on their way to Vivo's bunker in Indiana. I prefer to look at the book of Revelation as a letter written to believers in what is now modern Turkey and encouraging them to remain true to Jesus Christ, to not compromise the gospel with the culture surrounding them. And even if they're persecuted and even if they're murdered for their faith, in other words, even if they're dealing with legitimate fears, John's word is God will ultimately prevail. God wins in the end. And the book of Revelation ends where the Bible begins. It paints a beautiful picture of the climax of human history. Eden is restored. He writes this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Verse 3, Then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. The paradise lost in Genesis Eden is restored in the very end. The holy city coming down from heaven. God's goodness, love, life prevail. I know it's not Christmas, and I know we're not in our church building on Bristol Road. I'm in my living room, and you're in your living room, and our fabulous orchestra and choir, oh, how I miss them, are not assembled today. But could you close your eyes and just imagine our choir, just imagine, 
the choir is singing Handel's Messiah. And hear them sing, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ and his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And he shall reign forever and ever. And then the choir will go, king of kings and the other side forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And Lord of lords forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And he shall reign forever and ever. I love it. It gives me goosebumps even in my living room. It's true. The hope of the, of the revelation is that God is making all things new and he shall reign forever and ever. So that does not lead us to a place of ignorance and apathy. I don't know. I don't care. Instead, God calls on us to rely on him and to go into this fear-inducing world to do his bidding, to be active, creative, hopeful, joyful. Why? Because he is going to reign forever and ever. And that's why we pray nearly every Sunday to seek his kingdom first in heaven, on earth, as it is in, in, or in Flint, as it is in heaven. That was true before the pandemic. That's true during the pandemic. And that, my friends, will be true after the pandemic. I love the prophet Zechariah, who was, who was writing to a fearful people, post-exile Babylon. The city, the holy city of Jerusalem had been destroyed. What do these people do now? How will they make it? Life is tough. Sound a little familiar, right? The prophet Zechariah comes, and he points to the people to God's great and glorious future. That the people of God, he, he calls them to have, be prisoners of hope, no matter how frightening our future may or may not be, how terrifying our past may or may not have been, God is still God. We are still his people and he shall reign forever and ever. That's the hope, the promise of the revelation. And that's the hope and the promise of Zechariah. We are prisoners of hope. I suppose, suppose if a pull was taken, I dare say the most loved story of Jesus would be the prodigal son, right? Everyone loves the prodigal son. We can all put ourselves in the shoes of the prodigal, and we all want the father to receive us in open arms, even after we have royally messed up. I heard a story that took place in a small town in Spain. A man named Jorge had a bitter argument with his young son, Paco. Well, the next day, Jorge woke up and discovered that Paco's bed was empty. He had run away from home. Overcome with remorse, Jorge searched his soul and he realized that what he and his son were arguing about the day before was, was really nothing at all. And he wanted to start over. So Jorge went to a well-known store in the center of his town and posted a large sign that said, Paco, come home. I love you. Meet me here tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. The next morning, Jorge went to the store and he got there right at 10 a.m., and what he found was seven young boys named Paco who had all run away from home. They were all answering the call to, 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 to love once again. Each one was hoping that it was his dad inviting him home with open arms. That's us. And that's why we love the story of seven Pacos or the, love the story of the prodigal son so much. Paco and the prodigal and us are welcomed home by the father's embrace. You know, the prodigal son's story, it's laced with fear. 
The young man who'd squandered his money in the far-off country wanderings is now sitting with the pigs. Often you've heard sermons on this saying how he was eating with the pigs, but actually the Bible paints an even worse picture. The Bible says he longed to be filled, to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Sounds like he isn't even eating the pig food. How bad off do you have to be to wish you could be eating pig food? He's starving. So it's not hard to, to imagine that he was in a fearful position, fearful of where his next meal is going to come from, wishing he could eat pig food, fearful of his future. What kind of future does he have if he can't survive this crisis? Fearful of going home, what will his father say to him? Fearful of, of being rejected. There's a lot of fear in this story. But like last week's message, sometimes you have to attack those fears and anxieties with action. And that's what the prodigal son does. He picks himself up. He starts to go home. He practices his apology speech all the way home. And then you know what happens. That's why we love this story. When he was still far from home, his dad sees him coming down the road, runs to him, grabs him with a glorious welcome home embrace. He had nothing to fear. He was home. Hallelujah, he was home. When we release our fears to God, when we remember that it's God Almighty that's in control, when we recall and remember and rejoice that in the end, he wins. When you are his and he is yours, you win. The Bible over and over again doesn't lead us to a place of indifference to our world's great dilemmas and problems, pandemics, injustices. No, no, no. It leads us to, to a hope in a God who wins. Nearly 100 years ago, a, a church called the, the Philadelphia Church in Stockholm, Sweden, sent two missionary couples to the Congo, David and Svea Flood, Joel and Bertha Erickson. They macheted their way through the jungle of Congo and set up a mission station in the middle of nothing next to a little village. The first year, the two couples didn't see a single convert, not one. But that didn't stop Svia from trying. There was a five-year-old boy that would deliver eggs to their back door every single day. And every single day, Svia would tell him about Jesus. Svia became pregnant shortly after arriving and because she had contracted malaria in their trek through the jungle, she was bedridden for, for most of the pregnancy. Then on April 23rd, 1923, she gave birth to a baby girl named Ana. Sadly, 17 days later, May 10th, 97 years ago this past week, Svia died. David, her husband, made a casket and buried his 27-year-old wife on the mountainside overlooking that village. But grief and then bitterness flooded David's heart. Imagine this. David gave his little baby girl to the Ericsons to raise. He returned to Sweden. He gave up his baby. He would spend the next five decades of his life trying to drown his sorrow with alcohol. He told anyone who would listen to him to never mention God's name in his presence. Well, the Ericsons began to raise little Ana and did until she was a toddler. Then both of them, Joel and Bertha, died within days of each other. The villagers, the villagers who they were trying to reach for Jesus, had poisoned them. It's a wonder that Ana survived, but she did. 
And she was given over then to another missionary couple, an American couple named Arthur and Anna Berg. The Berg changed her name from Anna to Agnes and called her Aggie. Are you still with me? By this time, Aggie has had three sets of parents and she's only three years old. Eventually, the Bergs moved back to the United States. They started pastoring a church in South Dakota. Aggie grew up as a PK, a preacher's kid. And after high school, she enrolled in North Central Bible College in Minneapolis, Minnesota. She met and married a fellow student, Dewey Hurst. Dewey was a pastor and eventually became president of the Northwest Bible College. On their 25th wedding anniversary, the college gave the Hearst a very special gift, a trip to Sweden. Aggie's sole purpose was to try to find her biological father, David. They searched Stockholm without a trace for five days. And on their last day before departure, they got a tip that led them to a third floor ramshackled apartment building. And there Aggie found her dad, David. He was on his deathbed with a failing liver. Alcohol will do that to a guy. And then he heard the words he never thought he would hear. Papa, it's Ana. The first words out of his mouth were filled with remorse. I never meant to give you away. They embraced. And it was as if the 50-year curse of bitterness and heartbreak was finally over. I love that story. It's a great story. But that's not the whole story. I feel like Paul Harvey. I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. For you old-timers, you remember Paul Harvey. Five years later, Dewey and Aggie Hurst went to an international church gathering in London, England. One of the speakers on the opening night was a guy with a very long last name that I'm not even going to try to pronounce. So I'm putting it on the screen so you can see his name. Well, Mr. Long Name Guy, the guy who was speaking, was a superintendent of a large group of churches in Zaire, formerly Congo. So after the service, Aggie found Mr. Long Name and asked him if he knew the village where she spent her early years in Congo. He said, yes. In fact, he said, I grew up in that village. She asked if, if he remembered missionaries whose last name was Flood. He said, yes. Every day I would go to Svea Flood's back door with a basket of eggs. And every day she would tell me about Jesus. He said, I said, I, I don't know if she had a single convert in Africa besides me. He said, shortly after I accepted Jesus, Svea died and her husband left. And she had a baby named Ana, and I always wondered what happened to Ana. Well, Aggie, she revealed that she was Ana. And the guy with the long last name started to sob. They embraced like, like siblings separated at birth. The guy with the long last name that I can't pronounce said this just a few months ago. I place flowers on your mother's grave on behalf of the hundreds and hundreds of churches in Zaire and the thousands and thousands of believers in Zaire. Then he said this, thank you for letting your mom die so that so many could live. Amazing. I read that story this week and I thought, that's the powerful almighty God that we serve. That's the good news of the resurrection. The, the greatest spiritual victory, Jesus is alive came on the heels 
of its seemingly greatest defeat, Jesus is crucified. All was lost, all was over. The final word spoken, in your hands I commit my spirit, it is finished. But not for long, my friends. Three days later, praise God, three days later. If we were in this sanctuary, I would say, folks, you got to say amen to that. Three days later, amen, amen, amen. An amen for every day he was in the tomb. For Jesus walked out of that tomb under his own power and strength in God's kingdom. The final word never has the final word. Jesus has the final word. And Jesus Christ is the victor. Now, friends, you won't win every battle. And you'll go through storms. Coronavirus qualifies. But folks, the war has already been won. The victory was sealed 2,000 years ago. I've told you in nearly every sermon in this series, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Christ is the victor, and we can be more than victors too. Do you remember Paul's words? If God be for us, who can be against us? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who then shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And we would add or coronavirus or COVID-19 or stay at home orders or unemployment or anything else. No, no, no. Verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons nor present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation. Again, not pandemics or coronavirus, or unemployment, or worries, or fears, or anything else will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. Billy Graham said this, when was the last time you praised God in the midst of despair? Don't wait until you feel like it, or you'll never do it. Do it, and then you'll feel like it. What great advice, old Billy Graham was right. It's praising Jesus in the middle of the storm. It's releasing our fears and worries and anxieties to God Almighty in the middle of a pandemic. It's being like Jonah in the belly of the whale, finally coming to his senses. It's Paul and Silas whose day included being arrested, stripped, beaten with rods, thrown in jail, chained to a wall. But what were they doing at midnight? You know. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. That's what Acts 16.25 says. It's the prodigal son sitting with the pigs. And the Bible says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. In my father's house, there are good things, good, good things, things to spare. That's what the prodigal said. It's joy in the storm. It's rejoicing in the jail at midnight. It's remembering what's in your father's house, even when you're in the deepest pit of despair. It's releasing your worries and your fears to God Almighty. That's what we're talking about. God's ways prevail, and he will welcome us home with joy. I saw a video clip this past week. It went viral, so maybe you saw it too. It's a dad pitching to his four-year-old son. And his son hits it out of the park. Four-year-old kid hits it out of the park. Perfect swing for a four-year-old kid. Man, oh man. If the major leagues baseball ever start playing, the Tigers need to call this kid. I mean, he's already better than half of the, the players on their roster. But that's another story. But what I want you to see 
is this dad's reaction. Focus on the dad. Check out this video. So was dad the only one in the crowd? That's four-year-old, four years old Ash running the bases um, near Atlanta. Made me smile. How about you? I love that video. Pastor, what in the world does that video have to do with fear or not? I mean, it's a cool video. It's a kid hitting a home run. It's his dad going crazy. But what does that have to do with fear or not? Do you know what I thought of when I, when I saw that video first? My very first thought. After in my life reading probably, I don't know, thousands of theology books, hundreds of thousands of pages, pastoring 30 years and all my 50 seven, soon to be seven years of living, I don't think I've ever seen or read or heard a better example of how God feels when we make it safely home to our Father's house. It's that dad. That's it. That's the reaction of our Heavenly Father. It's great. You're home. You're home. You're home. You're home. I think that's God Almighty's reaction to us. God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, wants his children, you, you, you are his prized possession. You who are at home listening to this sermon, maybe you're eavesdropping, trying not to look like you're paying attention, but you are paying attention. Listen up to what I'm saying. You are loved by God. He is waiting to have a joyous, overwhelming, excited, glorious, welcome home embrace with you. A holy dance, your home, your home, your home. Thank God Almighty, your home. Listen, God never intended for you to go through this life fearful. God Almighty does not want you to be incapacitated by fear, unable to move past your past, or unable to love because of the lack of love you've experienced in your old life. God Almighty, he doesn't want you to be afraid of the future, afraid of the storm, afraid of coronavirus or any other circumstance. No, no, no. Remember Paul's words written back in the Roman prison. He said, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Our Heavenly Father, you don't want us to be fearful. You don't want us to go through life uh, incapacitated or, or sheltered in place forever and ever, not going out, not loving, not reaching out, not, not doing anything for you. No, you want us to go into our world and to make a difference for you and to see your will done in your kingdom come right here where we're at in Flint. So help us, Lord to throw any anxieties on you, release all those worries and fears to you. Thank you for what you're doing. Yes, we can't wait until we're back in church worshiping together, but in the meantime, Lord, you are still in control and we will rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, amen.